Welcome to this week's American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and colleague Derek Davison. Derek, how's it going? Uh, okay, I'm I'm not as excited as you are. My my favorite uh, newspaper <laughs> columnist has left his his job and is moving on to other <laughs> things, and, and it's it's got me a little bit down. I have to say. And Derek is, of course, talking about friend of the pod, Nick Kristoff, uh, big, big time foreign policy thinker, one of the greatest minds of the 20th and 21st century. Someone I mean, whose he and words Tom Friedman really, really <laughs> together have shaped my. Yeah, the, the, the duo of Friedman and Kristoff yeah. will be read in a thousand years. People, you know, people read Plutarch today. People will be reading Friedman and Kristoff uh, in, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand years to look back on what the American empire was doing in its descendants, in its decline. <laughs> uh, so, Derek, why why do we love Nick Kristoff so much? What what is Why is Nick Kristoff so important um, as, as a foreign policy columnist? And just to, um, to make clear to people, Kristoff has, uh, from our understanding, resigned from the New York Times to run for governor of Oregon. Uh, so this is why, you know, it's a, it's a good little time to reflect on his long and storied career. Yeah, just before he gets creamed and comes back to the New York Times, it's a little window where we can talk about his legacy. And I might uh, actually have to take a break from American Prestige to run his campaign listener, so I'm sorry in <laughs> advance. <laughs> um, I mean, Nick Kristoff is sort of, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, an expert in the Christoph Ouv, uh, but he's he's basically the walking embodiment of white privilege, or not white privilege, the white man's burden. That's that's what I'm looking for. Um, you know, I mean, he specializes in kind of parachuting into places like Darfur or you know slums around the world and uh, talking about the the plight of the poor benighted uh, peoples, and then you know parachuting out and pretty much advocating for liberal intervention <laughs> for a policy that that generally makes those things worse uh, rather than doing anything to make them better. Yeah, and from a position of like extreme moral authority, like always presenting oneself as the moral arbiter of international politics and the moral arbiter of, of what's good and and as someone who, you know, really made his career um, presenting himself as sort of the conscience of the United States in the era of its unilateralism. Um, and I think that's that's really um, critical to understanding his his power within the D.C. foreign policy establishment. And do you yeah, think he, that— I mean, he articulates—you're right. I mean, he articulates this sort of, um, you know, cutting away the any kind of realism or, you know, um, any other— considerations he articulates this morality based call for foreign intervention pretty consistently i will give him credit for um being a skeptic of the iraq war that's the one thing i will sort of give him credit for but uh beyond that it's sort of like you know he he always articulates the uh, the reason why you should feel bad if you're skeptical of uh, U.S. intervention around the world because that makes you a bad person because you obviously don't want to help these people. I think that maybe one mistake that the humanitarian world has made is to focus so much on all the terrible things that happen that we don't fully, fully acknowledge the progress. And 
the truth is that side by side with the worst things happening in the world, you see the very best. And it's linked to this idea, which I think I'd like to discuss more in a future episode, of the American state as being kind of the the. Uh, the the pusher of modernization, the pusher of modernity that is going to make the rest of the world modern come hell or high water. And so, uh, Derek, I wanted to ask, do you think that, I mean, it's difficult to know, like, as a historian, you look back on these things and it actually turns out he wasn't just resigning to, you know, run for governor of Oregon, which is kind <laughs> of a crazy thing to do. Do you think he was pushed at all? And do you think this indicates um, about anything about the future of the foreign policy sort of world and official DC of which, you know, Kristoff is this, you know, towering figure that the sort of like um, a cella corridor between DC and New York? I don't, I honestly don't know. I remember... I remember reading something, and I'm I'm Googling this as I'm talking about this, uh, where he was even thinking about running for mayor at one point or something of his own, like, hometown back in Oregon. So it wasn't even, like, um, it was something, like, lower level than governor. I mean, I, I obviously, he uh, came to believe that his talents would be better served as uh, the governor. But, like, I, <laughs> I remember there's being some... Uh, like, I, I think this is something that he's been thinking about. Like, I, I, I have some, I have a vague sense that he was, he's already talking about this before, for a while before um, announcing this jump. I feel like for a guy like Kristoff, and this is probably true in other aspects of the, um, the, the commentariat, I don't know if you, you want to limit it to the foreign policy commentariat, but there, I think there's a sense among these folks after the Trump era that like I have to do something to step up and like I can't just write about it anymore. I have to get in the game and like I love it. save America. And Nick Kristoff you know, is history on horseback. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. And also, I mean, I, I don't think they would they would say this openly, but there's gotta be a sense of like, if this this guy could do it. Like surely I, uh, surely I, as a respected New York Times columnist, like if Donald Trump, a complete putz, uh, could be be elected president, surely uh, esteemed New York Times columnist Nick Kristof, which is a complete misreading of the the, the American public and the electorate, uh, but I, I would imagine that's part of the consideration. There's got to be some something going on in uh, in in his brain that that thinks uh, you know he's more qualified than Donald Trump was, so why not? No, I think that's totally right. And and obviously here, uh, we here on American Prestige will continue to give us our weekly, uh, your weekly Kristoff minute. And we may in fact <laughs> sign up to be his foreign policy advisors. Uh, Nick, if, if you're listening, he's definitely a listener. Uh, Nick, uh, just contact me. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting in touch with you. But why don't we, you know, fly over from the beautiful Pacific Northwest to uh, the Middle East. So Derek, what's been going on over there? It seems like Israel is normalizing relations with a bunch of, um, countries in the region sort of you know putting uh really putting the period on uh, on on the era where Israel seemed to have been uh, somewhat of a pariah within the region of the Middle East it seems like there's a normalization of the status quo there which which doesn't particularly bode well um for the Palestinian people or the or the future of um their uh their their nationhood and and or or even just getting a state so what's been going on there and why is it important um, well, I mean, this goes back to the uh, Trump administration's Abraham Accords, if you uh, feel like adopting that term. Uh, this was Donald Trump's 
only <laughs> maybe only signature or only foreign policy achievement uh, you know during his four years in office other than I guess pulling out of the Iran deal and uh, you know screwing a bunch of other things up um, but the the Abraham Accords were the brainchild of uh, Viceroy Jared Kushner who was our Middle East <laughs> uh, sub sub you know vice Jared for the the four years friend of, of the pot Trump's term friend of the yeah, pot, friend of the pot Kushner. absolutely <laughs> Um, and basically it's involved a series of bilateral agreements between Israel and various Arab states. Uh, they concluded, uh, the initial two with the United Arab Emirates and with Bahrain. Uh, they concluded a subsequent agreement with Morocco. Uh, there is an agreement in place with Sudan, but the Sudanese government, which is a, a very tenuous, uh, at this point, maybe falling apart interim arrangement hasn't uh, fully ratified it because of political uh, concerns. Um, and and essentially, it, it amounted to the Trump administration bribing these Arab states uh, to normalize relations with Israel, which has been a longstanding goal of the Israelis to sort of put the Palestinian issue to the side uh, and engage diplomatically with its neighbors or with the, you know its uh, uh, with the Arab world. Um, the UAE got to buy, you know, a bunch of fancy hardware drones and F-35s from the United States. They got approval for that in return for um, doing doing a normalization agreement. Morocco got U.S. recognition uh, of its claim over Western Sahara, the disputed territory of Western Sahara, um, upending longstanding U.S. policy that that needed to be worked out at an international level. Um, so, I mean, it's been basically, you know, giving these countries whatever they want in return for normalizing relations with Israel. What's interesting right now, and obviously this was a, a Trump initiative, it seems to be um, so all of a sudden being embraced very heavily uh, by the Biden administration. Um, they came into office, Biden came into office with he and uh, Tony Blinken and others saying they weren't going to do anything to upset the normalization agreements that had already been put in place, but it didn't seem like they were necessarily going to uh, make it a, a priority to expand upon them. Uh, they seem to have uh, decided to make it a priority. I, I suspect this is partly to sort of um, assuage some of the people who were angry that we didn't leave the U.S. military in Afghanistan until the heat death of the universe, uh, because <laughs> they're generally in favor of uh, anything that helps the state of Israel. Uh, and so uh, Blinken just met with um, UAE Foreign Minister Ahmed bin Zayed uh, and Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid in Washington uh, this week. They talked about expanding the accords. I don't know if that means trying to bring more Arab states into you know similar deals. That could be a little bit of a, a tough sell at this point, um, or if it means just broadening the agreements that already exist. But but clearly this is become a, a priority for the uh, the administration. And I think what this really indicates, uh, like I said a, a bit earlier, is that almost nothing is going to be done by the North Atlantic community or the United States to aid in the Palestinian um, in Palestinian nationalism or Palestinian sovereignty in any way. I think the normalization of relations, um, Israeli relations with the rest of the region is just going, is just indicating the future of that issue in a very depressing and tragic way. But that seems to be the case that, that the Palestinian people really have no friend in the United States on, on the, you know, nominal 
traditional liberal side or or the right wing. And I think uh, we're going to be paying closer attention uh, to that um, going forward. But this is really a depressing moment in geopolitics, I think. It is, and I think it it takes it to another level. I mean, it's been clear for for a long time that the United States was never going to challenge um, the Israeli government on, let's say, settlements uh, in the West Bank or any of the things that uh, that really foreclose a, a, a peace deal um, with the Palestinians or a Palestinian state, the creation of a Palestinian state. Uh, but this almost takes it to a, a, another level in that the United States is now uh, in the business of actively stripping the Palestinians of whatever little bit of um, leverage or, um, you know, kind of a negotiating position they might have once had. Uh, we're now taking that away and sort of, uh, I, I think, just kind of peeling away the curtain in a sense. But, um, you know, and, and there's because the Biden administration is, of course, uh, filled with good liberals, you get things you get, you know, people talking about, uh, well, we want to use the Abraham Accords to, to help the Palestinians, which is a little like, uh, we're going to talk about this later. It's a little like the Norwegian government saying we're going to uh, support the environment by drilling for more oil. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it's just nonsensical, but it's it's the kind of thing I guess you have to say to, the, uh, to give yourself some rhetorical cover. But there's no sense in which this helps the Palestinians. There, there's no way that this um, works in the long run to Palestine, to, to, to the benefit of a Palestinian state or the creation of one. Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, speaking of Norway, uh, let's go over to Northern Europe. Let's fly to Northern Europe. I've been doing this thing. Maybe, Jake, you can insert, you know, little uh, airplane sounds uh, <laughs> as we fly around the world here over at American Prestige or, or maybe a hot air balloon, as the case may be, for there climate reasons. Speaking of climate, I think this is actually really interesting what's happening in Norway because the Scandinavian countries um, are, are, are often pointed to by the American left as being sort of like not not necessarily like ideals, but certainly models for the United States to, um, to to model themselves on, particularly in terms of their social democratic policies. But I think what, what's going on in Norway highlights a lot of the tension um, at the heart of, of Scandinavian politics. So, uh, Derek, what's going on over in Norway? Uh, so, the Norwegian uh, – Norway had an election last month, parliamentary uh, election. Um and the conservative coalition that had been in power and under Prime Minister Ernest Solberg, apologies if I'm uh, not pronouncing that correctly, uh, there's going to be a lot of that, I think, in the next couple of, in the next few seconds, so uh, bear with me. Um, they suffered so a So much to do a supercut of our mispronunciations. Uh, yeah, there you go. Pr some prestige go. head out there. <laughs> Uh, so they, uh, they lost, uh, pretty big, um, the, the left or center left, I guess, um, really more center than left, I, I suppose, um, emerged as the big winners, uh, three parties in particular, the labor, uh, center and socialist left parties, uh, were expected to negotiate or try to negotiate a coalition. Um, the Labour Party, led by I don't know, man, Jonas Gar Store or Jonas Gar, I don't know, man. You're just going to have to bear with me. Uh, so the Labour Party, which finished first, came in first in the election, uh, would would lead the coalition, and it was supposed to be a, a sort of broad left to center uh, type of arrangement. The socialist left uh, within a few days withdrew 
from negotiations uh, to form a coalition. And this uh, was a pretty bad sign, I think, for anybody who uh, is not in favor of cooking the planet, because their reason for leaving was they couldn't come to an agreement with the other two parties on environmental policy. Or that was that was one of the two uh, or three big reasons that they gave. So fast forward to uh, this week, the new minority coalition, uh, consisting just of labor and center, uh, issued their um, kind of agreement yesterday. They, they you know, finally uh, signed on the dotted line and, and reached uh, agreement. So the government took power, I think, today. Um, they issued their, their agreement to the public yesterday on Wednesday. Um, and in it, they stressed their intention to continue handing out offshore drilling contracts for oil and gas uh, to even, you know, push oil and gas exploration potentially into uh, previously undrilled parts of the, the Arctic Ocean uh, that are in Nor- within Norway's territorial waters. Um, and yet, at the same time, they're also committed to a fair climate policy that cuts emissions. That's a quote. Uh, which um, is bullshit. I mean, these are two things that can't uh, coexist, but it's indicative of of the sort of progressive Northern European, I guess the limitations maybe of progressive Northern European environmental policy and that you have these parties that nominally are, are, you know, sort of uh, support doing something about climate change, but are tethered to the oil industry as, uh, as the Norwegian economy is, uh, you know, almost completely tethered to the oil industry. Uh, There's not, there's not much that they're willing to do to really um, challenge that and to, to enact an environmental policy that could actually uh, help uh, humanity in some way. Yeah, and I think uh, was it something like five f- percent um, of Norwegian workers are directly tied to the oil extractive industry or the energy extractive industry. It's it's a, it's a fairly large number. And and to put on my Jacobin editor's hat for a second, it really just highlights that the, the problem is capitalism, right? That you're, as long as we have a capitalist global economy or, or nation state economies that are premised on consumption and the use of energy resources, you're never going to be able to basically break the problem of climate change. So that, you know, it, it, it just really underlines the difficulties of addressing this, this potentially existential issue within the context of a structure of capitalism, because they need to export, they need to employ, you, you need to work to live, uh, while at the same time, the, the very you know major um, economic industry of this country is cooking the planet. The meaning of oil in Norway is, is essential. This is what we have built now for 50 years in Norway. This is, a, this is making Norway Norway. We will develop this business also to go more and more green, but uh, still we are dependent of oil. Um, and so I think it just highlights the tensions that we're all facing and the sort of difficult issues that uh, we as a North Atlantic world are going to face over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And I think we need to start being more honest about these things if we ever hope to break through climate change. Um, yes. And this has been uh, a theme that I've seen much more broadly, actually, over the last week or so. It's not just about uh, where the jobs are or where the money comes in from. It's about uh, what the existing 
energy infrastructure is set up to handle. And, and when you see, um, you know, we've, we've seen uh, in parts of Europe, there have been energy shortages recently. India is facing uh, a potential energy shortage. China is facing blackouts already. They're at the point where, where th- they're facing rolling blackouts in some parts of the country. Uh, winter is approaching in all these places, or, you know, some of these places at least, uh, you know, so there's going to be a need to heat people's homes. And what do they do? They turn to coal uh, or natural gas, uh, because that's what the power plants are set up to, I mean, that's what the infrastructure exists for. And so if you have a shortage, uh, you have to dig more coal to fill the shortage. You have to, uh, you know, drill for more natural gas to make up the shortage or buy more natural gas from uh, Russia, which may happen, uh, which the European countries may be doing uh, soon. And, and you know, it's, it's um, a trade-off between uh, part of this, part of it, I think, is a is a short term political trade off. It's what can I uh, do in the short term, and and what do people, what are people going to get mad at me about in the short right. term? Is it going to be uh, in carbon emissions, or is it going to be the fact that they're you know freezing in their homes in a blackout uh, because we don't have enough power? And the trade off obviously is uh, you know I I I need to we need to provide the power that we have or what, you know, whatever we can do. And, um, you know, it, it, it reflects, as you say, the, the, there are trade off, there are decisions that need to be made that are uncomfortable decisions that are going to, um, be unpopular potentially that are going to be difficult for people to live with in a transition, but they are decisions that somebody has to start making in favor of not cooking the planet instead of in favor of, you know, whatever the, uh, the short term need is. Yeah, consuming less, and and no one wants to tell people, uh, particularly in the North Atlantic world, which since the 60s has been based on a consumptive capitalism to consume less. So let's uh, get in our hot air balloon, uh, and let's head on over to Taiwan, which is another hot spot in this week's international news. Uh, so Derek, why don't, before we get into the issue uh, that that's going on today, why don't you give people just a little bit of a background context, particularly on the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979, and the United States's legal relationship to Taiwan as it presently exists. Um, so th- this goes back to uh, Richard Nixon's negotiations in the, the 70s with China to get uh, the Chinese government to sort of break away from the Soviet Union. Um, by the by, the time of the Carter administration, you know that that there was an agreement in place. Uh, China had come over to the sort of uh, to to the good guys. They come over to the side of goodness and right and light. Um, and <laughs> so um, the Carter under the Carter administration in 1979, uh, the United States adopted a policy that recognized uh, the People's Republic of China or mainland China or Beijing, whatever you want to call it, uh, as the one China. Uh, it switched recognition from Taiwan or the Republic of China, whatever, again, whatever you want to call it, um, and uh, adopted this alternate policy to sort of, you know, to reward the, the Chinese government. Um at the same time, or around the same time, uh, Congress passed um, in 1979 the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, which exists to sort of maintain uh, some relationship with with Taiwan. It stipulates that the United States doesn't have uh, 
um, diplomatic relationship with Taiwan, although uh, it, it has maintained one under sort of different guise over the years. Um, it allows sort of it allows what are called de facto diplomatic relations, which means you can have uh, representatives in each other's country, but you can't call them ambassadors, and you can't call the offices where they work embassies. Uh, yeah, but you special can still friends. Maintain. Right, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it allows for arms sales, but it doesn't bind the United States necessarily to, inv- to assist Taiwan in the case of any kind of military in- incursion. Um, it, it limits, in theory, it limits uh, Taiwanese arms sales to defensive weaponry. That's uh, not a definition that is uh, binding in any operable way. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I love that. I love the distinguishing between <laughs> defensive and offensive weapons. It yeah, is one of the most ridiculous yeah, things that has like developed <laughs> over the course of the 20th century. But it's absolutely absurd. You know, like weapons, obviously, anyone listening knows, could be used in a variety of different contexts. Um, and so it's one of the mo- more ridiculous things of these sorts of uh, weapons transfers. Um, it, it, it further main, it maintains essentially... Um, a policy of strategic ambiguity. Uh, that's that's what is fundamentally built into the uh, the U.S. Taiwan relationship, which um, m- means we don't. The United States won't say. Probably will never say uh, what it would do in the event of a Chinese attack uh, on Taiwan. We do that for um, a couple of reasons. One, not to to violate, in a technical sense, our agreements with China, uh, and two, because we feel it's militarily somewhat advantageous uh, to keep the Chinese government guessing about what we might do, although I don't know how much uh, guesswork would actually be involved here. Um, But the deal, um, as far as mainland China is concerned, is that the United States uh, agrees not to take any kind of a position on the statehood of Taiwan or the independence of Taiwan. So we won't say if we're for it, we won't say we're against it. Um, and that's been enough, uh, for the Chinese government. Um, all of these things are in question or have come into question, um, increasingly in recent years as a, a growing independence movement, um, has kind of built up, uh, within Taiwan, uh, within Taiwanese politics, um, and the Chinese government has increasingly put pressure on Taiwan or, or, you know, made statements of, uh, uh, borderline, you know, kind of hostile intent, uh, about reunification. And, and, you know, it's, it's viewed uh, obviously as the, the probably, I would say the biggest potential, uh, flashpoint for a full on, uh, U.S. Chinese war. And I think Taiwan is really crucial because it's a linchpin in the post-45 geostrategy, which is that the United States will remain forever dominant in all regions. So I think this is why Taiwan has such an emotional resonance within the D.C. foreign policy establishment, because um, if China were to um, try to invade Taiwan or, or take it over and the United States didn't do anything to defend it, it just means that that project... Um, if not has failed, because I think the United States will remain global hegemon, it's become something different where the United States can't remain forever dominant in, in Eastern Asia, in East Asia. Right. We're not, we'll still be the global hegemon, but we're ceding regional hegemony 
right uh, which to, to me to china which means we could cede it elsewhere to other countries and and it's precisely all a, you know which to me seems concern. inevitable when i whenever i think about taiwan i uh, my my prediction and obviously as events change my prediction will change but i always thought what would happen is that uh, china would cross the straits uh and that the united states would do nothing and there would be some sort of scramble retreat and and a lot of people would die because no one was preparing for this eventuality but what's going on now in dc this week there was an op-ed recently published i believe in the washington post um, that, that sort of um, provides an insight into how uh, people are thinking about this now in the foreign policy establishment. Right. So the reason why we're we're talking about this here is because of, um, as you say, an op-ed uh, published earlier this week by Elaine Luria, who is a Democrat in the House, uh, represents Navy veteran, Virginia, my, my state, Virginia's second con- congressional district. Uh, and yeah, she's a, a Navy veteran. She's part of this um, you know, th- there's been this very concerted effort on the part of the Democratic Party for a while now to recruit veterans and and like ex CIA people and and just you know uh, people who who seem tough and uh, tough on national defense. I guess I don't know if this is to. Uh, I think we're still stuck in the Cold War mindset of Democrats Absolutely. being weenies. Uh, and just which one I second, don't, I don't think applies anymore. But yeah. Derek, just very quickly, and I think actually China's really crucial here because I think the big moment when this started going, when Democrats started worrying about being weenies, was the quote-unquote loss of China in October 49. So I think China occupies a central place in particular in the Democratic imagination. Um, that quote-unquote loss under Truman really, really shaped Democratic politics until today. Um, yeah, I mean, it shaped, uh, it was, a, a you know, the question of who lost China dominated, uh, you know, for a few years there into the 1950s. It fed, uh, you know, concerns about Korea. It fed concerns about Vietnam. It's, it's, uh, it was a huge question. Um, and I think you're right. I think that's, that's sort of the, the original sin as far as the Democratic Party is concerned in, in, in foreign policy. Um, Luria's op-ed uh, called for Congress to pass um a a new measure that's been proposed by a couple of republicans uh which is called the Taiwan Invasion Prevention Act uh and basically what the Taiwan Invention Prevention or Preve- Invasion Prevention Act would do is it would authorize uh the president of the United States whomever that might be to go to war with China in response to an invasion of Taiwan without waiting for congressional approval. I uh, want to give in, Donald Trump this power. <laughs> this is, sounds like a really I, good absolutely, idea. Absolutely. I want to give uh, good idea. You know, Donald Trump Jr. I, you know, whoever, whoever it is, I want them yeah. to have this power. They should um, have it. Yeah, for sure. It, it's, it's comparable in some ways to the uh, Gulf of Tonkin resolution in, in the Vietnam era. Uh, in fact, Andrew Basevich, who I, I, I know you're familiar with, is, uh, you know, uh, an actual friend of the pod. <laughs> analyst, actual friend of the pod. That's correct. Uh, he wrote, he wrote a piece for the nation where he said, uh, he's, uh, nominating Elaine Luria for honorary membership in what he called the Tonkin Gulf Chowder and Marching Society, uh, because, <laughs> because of the similarities here between these two things. I will say, I think he He's giving her a little bit too much credit because the the Gulf of Tonkin incident, whatever you want to make of it, was at least a thing 
it it was it was something that you could respond that Congress was responding to uh, in giving President Johnson authorization to go to war in Vietnam without you know having to to come back and ask for it again. Um, there's nothing that's happened in Taiwan uh, that that should provoke this kind of response. It's just a pervasive uh, sense that China could invade at any minute, which I think is ridiculous, um, and and that we must empower the president, which. Uh, you know, is is weird for a whole host of reasons. Number one, I don't think that the president needs this authority. I think uh, I, I I don't know. I'm not an expert on U.S. Taiwan, uh, you know, policy or, or law at this point. But I'm pretty sure, uh, given what I've seen of the last 20 years of U.S. foreign policy, that if the president decided uh, to go to war with China over Taiwan, he could do it right away and come back to Congress afterwards and get permission uh, or not. Maybe not even have to do that. So it's uh, it's a weird uh, thing, and it's it's strange to see um, this this push for it in Congress. Um, but you know, it is a hot ticket item, and Lurie has taken a, num- a lot of uh, criticism over the last few days. But um, you know, this is uh, this is how a good portion of the supposedly uh, you know kind of. Uh, l- less militaristic party, although I don't know if that's true anymore. Uh, but this is this is how the Democrats are approaching it, and most of the Republicans. Yeah, I think that's right. And it, this actually reminds me to make another connection to Vietnam, and I'm sure people have been listening. I hope people have been listening to our Vietnam series with Sean Fear. Reminds me a little bit of the madman theory, where it, it seems like um, the Democrats want to signal to China that they they have resolve and that they're willing to do something that could be enormously destructive. This seems part of that strategy. And so it'll be interesting to see how that develops and, and if there's any pushback um, from the, uh, you know, the, the quote unquote, leftier parts of the Democratic Party to this uh, aggressive position. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hesitant to, I don't know how much weight to sort of put on this. The op-ed was kind of startling. Um, I guess, you know, given Lurie's record, it's not that startling, but it, it was still uh, a little disturbing to read this in print in, in the Washington Post, although uh, we know the Washington Post record on war too, I guess. Um, but, you know, it's it's still, it's not a, a bill that's before the full House yet. It's not like this isn't anything that's imminently uh, going to be passed. As far as I know, um, the, the Biden administration hasn't taken a position on it or anything like that. So we're not like um, on the brink of, of this somewhat dangerous authorization being uh, being passed. But it, it is, you know, it's disturbing to see it uh, even being talked about. Well, I think we should wrap it up there. But before we go, want to let everyone know that we've published a merchandise store with the uh, our awesome logo uh, that people could purchase a lot of uh, a lot of different things on. I just want to say that we we wished we were able to have more items, particularly hoodies, on there. But the global supply chain uh, actually makes it very difficult right now to get <laughs> hoodies. So we here are suffering at American yes. Prestige. You are all suffering uh, right now. So just wanted to let everyone know. About about that. Um, and I hope you enjoy our interview today with Anatole Levin on liberal internationalism and realism. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye bye. Hello, American Prestige listeners. It is I, Derek. Uh, I'm here as always with Danny Bessner, my partner. Danny. Hello, everyone. How's it going? (laughs) Good, good, good. Looking forward to our interview today. 
Absolutely. Uh, we are very lucky to be joined by Anatole Levin, uh, who is a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, formerly of uh, Georgetown University uh, in Qatar, which is a place uh, uh, I lived for a little while, actually, many years ago, um, and of King's College London. Uh, he is here to take us through a debate that is rocking the the dc foreign policy community right now he's written a piece uh for a journal called survival called vindicating realist internationalism we will link to that in the show description uh anatole thank you so much for coming on the program thank you for inviting me so i want to start out for people who are not familiar with this debate with some general contours of of the argument and your piece is a response uh, to another piece, an earlier piece in the same journal, Survival, called Misplaced Restraint, the Quincy Coalition versus Liberal Internationalism uh, by Daniel Dudney and John Eikenberry. Um, if if you could take us through kind of their argument and and maybe, you know, even kind of give give people some additional background in terms of um, the the argument between this Kind of broadly speaking, I think you know liberal internationalism or Wilsonian internationalism, whatever you you want to call it, um, and the 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 restraint school as it as it may be, or the restraint community, which is um, you know very broad and and probably a not a great signifier, but um, you know those seem to be the two camps. If you could kind of take us in general through that that debate um, to start us off, sure. Well, the the original uh, essay by Eikenberry and Dudney really operated at two levels. Uh, one was a kind of political polemic with, frankly, some pretty silly and and easily knocked down uh, arguments. Um, and the other, uh, the deeper level, was this you know long standing debate essentially between realists of different kinds, uh, among which. I count myself, the Quincy would count itself, uh, and the liberal internationalists. Uh, the polemic, which I won't spend much time on because, as I say, it was frankly pretty silly, uh, was an attempt to uh, suggest that everybody in what they call the Quincy Coalition or the Restraint School uh, was uh, essentially very close to Donald Trump, that we were all Trumpians. Uh, and um, th that is very easily disprovable because... Uh, of course, um, all of us are opposed to the kind of unilateral exercises of American power that uh, Trump went in for. I mean, that is the central purpose of all the different parts of the restraint school. Um, what uh, they went on to do was to try to link um, uh, uh, the different um, restraint approaches to foreign policy to Trump's domestic policy. Uh, well, that's equally foolish because, of course, you have um, you do have uh, libertarians from the Cato Institute in the um, uh, restraint school, but you also have people going all the way over to the fairly far left, you know, the Nation and uh, Bernie Sanders. And so on. Uh, like me, so I'm in the Quincy Institute. I'm a non-resident <laughs> fellow there, uh, and I'm way to the left of the nation. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, exactly. So this, this is this was just sort of silly politicking, frankly. Um, but at and um, at a deeper level, this was the, the the old liberal internationalist argument going all the way back to Immanuel Kant, 
uh, in the uh, the 1790s, uh, closely related to what's been called the Democratic Peace School, which says that uh, peace and cooperation in the world depends ultimately on the whole, well, Kant said Europe, of course, in his day, but now the whole world becoming democratic, that only democratic systems can live in peace with each other uh, and cooperate effectively. And that um, this, uh, the democracy should be spread by American and Western foreign policy. Uh, And although, uh, of course, given everything that's happened in Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, Eikenberry and Dutney try to evade the question of spreading democracy by military intervention or humanitarian intervention. Um, Certainly in the generation since the Cold War, uh, the liberal internationalists have also been very strong interveners in in these places. And um, the counter-argument from the the, the realist side, of course, the realist camp... um, comes in in different forms, Uh, but is first of all that uh, the world is not going to become universally democratic, that this is a a pipe dream first, Uh, and that uh, if uh, we make international cooperation um, in vital causes like climate change, for example, uh, or combating the, uh, the pandemic, dependent on the whole world becoming democratic, then this is never going to happen. Uh, Secondly, uh, the argument is that uh, associating or making international cooperation and the the spread of democracy dependent on American power is fatal because uh, other countries, other populations have their own nationalism and they have their own national interests which conflict with those of the United States. And if you tell them that uh, to be a democracy uh, means following America's lead and America's interests in international affairs, that's pretty much the best argument you can give to Putin, to Xi Jinping, you know, to the Iranian leadership, to call Democrats and liberals in those countries traitors and American agents. In other words, and but it also causes you know it causes a, a genuine popular backlash uh, in so many countries. Uh, and um the um of course uh, when it comes to intervention, uh, the realist argument today is quite simply that um, with the partial and very specific exception of the Balkans, uh, American-led international intervention in the cause of spreading democracy or partially in the cause of spreading democracy simply has not worked. Not merely has it not worked, it has led to a series of disasters in Afghanistan, in Libya, in Iraq, uh, because um, in the first place, uh, Western-style democracy is not suited to uh, a great many countries around the world. It, indeed, uh, we cannot be sure that American-style democracy will even be suited to America, or European-style democracy will be suited to Europe in the generations to come. Uh, it seems time- to be going fine right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, yeah, let's, we're doing great. <laughs> let's wait till 2024, right? <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, the, the argument is simply that this isn't working. And partly because, you know, linked to the, the argument about the reaction against American power, that the French revolutionary leader, Maximilien Robespierre, said before he went completely mad, nobody likes armed missionaries. You know, uh, trying to spread religion or political ideals by force 
causes you know a natural reaction. But finally, um, the certainly now here I'm obviously not speaking for the whole of what Duny and and Eichenberry called the restraint school or the um, the Quincy coalition, but I am speaking on behalf of the Quincy. Uh, far from advocating. Uh, blind American isolationism, which is what we're also accused of by Eichenberg and Dudney, and far from opposing international cooperation, the Quincy, in fact, has supported the uh, the nuclear deal with Iran, um, supports international cooperation against climate change, supports the Paris Agreement against climate change, supports the international law of the sea, uh, which, of course, America never signed, along with a whole range of other uh, international agreements, supports inter- uh, negotiations, new treaties to, to limit nuclear weapons. So uh, far from being opposed to international cooperation, uh, realists of the stamp of the, of the Quincy uh, argue that, uh, on the contrary, an acceptance of a plurality of different political systems in the world and the legitimacy of other political systems uh, is necessary both to maintain international peace, uh, but also to lay the basis for international cooperation uh, in pursuit of essential human goals. So that is the the crux of the disagreement between us. That's really interesting. And I want to talk a little bit about your piece and about realism, because I think this is a really important thing to understand when trying to understand the Quincy Institute. So uh, I I consider myself a left, a socialist, a social democrat, uh, and I'm very influenced in terms of realism when I'm thinking about international relations. However, in your piece, you 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 very state very explicitly that you're influenced by the classical realists, right? The Morgenthau's, the John Hertz's, the founding generation in the 40s and the 50s, who I believe essentially constructed a realist tradition that doesn't really exist, stretching back to Thucydides. You know, every tradition has to construct itself, and they did that. So my big critique of realism um, is that it pretends like it's always the 1930s, which makes sense because it was formed in response to the 1930s. That it pretends that there's always um, a Hitler on the horizon, right? And that, you know, Mersheimer's insight that states seek survival might be true, but that's not especially interesting because 99.999% of international relations do not involve survival. So I was wondering if you could specifically delineate what you mean when you say that you're inspired by the classical realists on one hand, and what you what you think is important in terms of the critique that this is actually a counter-enlightenment philosophy, that it's a philosophy that maybe makes sense when you're dealing with Hitler, but you're almost never dealing with Hitler. Mm. Well, first of all, as I say, there are you know, disagreements within the, um, the the realist school. And if you take um, some, of course, another famous academic realist who co-authored a famous book on the Israel lobby with Mearsheimer, Stephen Walt, uh, you will find very strong differences between them uh, when it comes to the, uh, most notably, the, the extent of the, of the threat from China. Um, Mearsheimer, of course, yes, sees this very much in, I suppose you could say, Thucydidean terms. Uh, Walt does not. Um, uh, Mearsheimer, on the whole, favours uh, a more intelligent uh, exercise of American global power. Walt favours, uh, well, restraint and to a considerable extent withdrawal 
from existing. Yeah, Mersheimer, what, what I think we're dancing around is Mersheimer essentially thinks the United States should be in East Asia forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thinks that is to prevent, which to me seems like an, an incredibly reactionary position uh, and incredibly unrealistic, in fact, to believe that the United States will be able to maintain global empire in East Asia uh, for the foreseeable future. In terms of geopolitics, in terms of population, uh, it seems like a very problematic move. Well, I suppose, I mean, first of all, uh, uh, as you can probably imagine, uh, I and the, the Quincy side very much with Stephen Walt on this and not with Mearsheimer. Um, you, you know, we, we have consistently, led by my colleague Michael Swain, opposed the rush to a new Cold War with China uh, and very much opposed this line uh, that um, China, that Chinese communism today in any way resembles, and not just Nazism, but d- does not resemble Soviet communism or Chinese. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. You know, in, in its desire yeah. for world revolution, there is simply no evidence of that in Chinese foreign policy today. Um, but uh, I suppose, I mean, in, um, in East Asia, the argument would be that uh, the United States has a right to be in South Korea, Japan, for example, as long as the South Koreans and Japanese want them to be, you know, um, want to keep them there. Um, you know, the, the, the United States does have a, a defense treaty with, with these countries. Um, and, uh, you know, the day when the Japanese call for America to, to, to go, then I would say America should, should go. Uh, but, um, you know, right, uh, but it, these aren't like I mean, the because the United States has been you know dominating that country for for decades. I mean, Japan and South Korea, and has basically made it so that they are effectively their militaries. So, I mean, to what degree is that a free choice? To what degree is that not a free choice? I guess that's more of a philosophical question. But I'd be curious to really hear your take on the classical realists because I really do respect them, but I think a lot of their fundamental assumptions about human nature were just wrong. Like we don't live in a Hobbesian or Habesian. I've I've heard it both ways. Ways world. And I feel like that still informs far too much of, of realist thinking. Um, and it just doesn't make sense in 2021, again, to imagine that it's 1935, which I think so much of realism still does. Well, I can't t- completely agree with you there because um, actually, 19, the, the, uh, this constant going back to the 1930s is actually more of a liberal internationalist. Uh, True. I, I think they both do it. Liberal internationalists do it consciously, and realists do it by their ontology. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they're but, both products of the thirties. Uh, well, realists, you know, on the ho- the accusation from the liberal internationalist camp, on the contrary, is that liberal that, that realists underplay the importance of ideology. In other words, they see, you know, they they look at questions, you know, Morgenthau's classic formulation. Um, uh, interest expressed through power. And I think to, to a degree that, that goes for, for all realists. But of course, power comes in, uh, in different forms. Um, uh, only very, I mean, there are very crude and stupid realists, of course, just the very crude and stupid. Of every human population, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I would say that only very crude and stupid realists would see power only in military terms uh, or even in... Um, you know, in the crudest uh, e- economic terms. You know, I mean, look at American sanctions. There's a crude instrument, if ever there was one. Uh, but um, I, the, I think a great many realists today 
I mean, part of the problem is you, you've got an American foreign policy establishment that claims to be liberal internationalist and uses liberal internationalist rhetoric, but is very often, of course, absolutely realist, but in a in a, a very you know, crude bad way. way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, absolutely about power and zero sum games and domination and so. But um, if you look at uh, the um, some of the, the the great realists, certainly the, the greatest realist practitioner, George Kennan, uh, he he of course uh, crafted uh, initially a very sophisticated strategy uh, of the containment of Soviet. Communism. Oh, really? We disagree about containment. I, I don't think it's sophisticated whatsoever. Oh, oh no, uh, great. But but remember, but Kennan then, and Ke- but Kennan turned strongly against precisely the militarized and hysterical version uh, of containment, uh, which was adopted uh, from by, chiefly by Paul Nitzer and from then on. And Kennan. Since then, of course, opposed the Vietnam War, as, by the way, did Reinhold Niebuhr and Morgenthau, Morgenthau. Yeah. relatedly. Uh, and Kennan strongly opposed um, the expansion of NATO after the end of the Cold War, uh, and indeed the entire attempt uh, to maintain unilateral American hegemony through military domination, uh, as does the Quincy and as does Stephen Walt among uh, among many others. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is, um, look, here I'm speaking only for myself, uh, but um, pause for a brief advertisement. I just published a, a book, with the title of which in England, in, in Britain, uh, is Climate Change in the Nation State, The Realist Case. And uh, um, what this uh, was cheap as far as foreign, you know, the international relations theory concerned is was to say look um realism is about the state about the state it is um and threats to states well climate change uh, is by far the biggest it is the only truly existential threat uh, barring you know accidental nuclear war um that uh, major powers of the world are in fact facing today and that as a realist uh concerned with the the survival of the state in the long run, this is what you should be concentrating on and not the so-called threat from China or Russia. So, um, you know, realists come in different different forms. Uh, But certainly the the argument that uh, climate change is the true threat to the United States, um, not the only one, but by far the greatest one, is is in fact an argument that has been uh, adopted by the Quincy Institute. So um, uh, I don't think it's right that um, realists are inexorably drawn back to to, to 1935. Uh, I myself uh, have um, spent most of my adult life arguing against this, you know, accursed, constant return to, to 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 the nazis as a you know and appeasement this whole language that you know anyone who recommends reasonable compromise in international affairs is repeating munich and once again i think only i mean only very crude realists and frankly realists working in the american or atlanticist foreign policy establishment <laughs> use that line 
Um, I think, yeah, it's interesting. I just want to talk about Kennan for a second because I think it's it's ironic that someone who's often pointed to as such a um, paradigmatic realist actually made a totally ideological case for containment. And I think a lot of his later quote unquote good policies were based on essentially racist reactions uh, to what he saw as as what was going on in the world. And there's been some really interesting work in, in diplomatic history about, you know, Kennan's ideology and his particular, you know, conservative form of nationalism, even if he did get it right sometime in particular, I think in that containment in the long telegram of February 46, he essentially imposes an American worldview on Marxism Leninism, uh, essentially uh, projecting the sort of universalistic uh, puritanism of the American state onto Marxist Leninism, when by that point it was socialism in one country and it was not like fomenting world revolution. But th that's neither here nor there. The interesting thing also about Kennan, uh, not Kennan, about Walt uh, and Mersheimer is that, you know, their most recent books basically totally focus on the second image to use IR parlance. They totally focus on domestic ideology because they have to explain deviations from their theory about how the American state should act. And I just think that's an interesting note and highlights the paucity of some forms of realist thinking. And in terms of the 30s, I think I, I completely agree in terms of the analogical reasoning. Like, that is silly. But I would even say, like, the view of human nature inherent in realism, this sort of kind of black boxing of capitalism as a motive force in human history is very much still a product of the 1930s um, that, you know, really shapes how realists approach the world in general. Um, so when we're talking about climate change, I'd love to hear a little bit about your book. Um, climate change is a threat to states, but how, how do you imagine this sort of transnational interactions happening if the philosophical anthropology is still, you know, survival uh, in the in the final analysis? Cooperation between states, um, uh, agreements between states, you know, I, as I say, and the, the Quincy as well, are wholly in favor of uh, international agreements. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I, I do think it, it, it should be fairly obvious, and I think it's also been demonstrated in the case of the, the pandemic, uh, that in the end, there are a, a great many things, certainly in the case of climate change, a great majority of things that only states can do. Because, um, you know, the international agreements in themselves do nothing. Uh, international movements, which I uh, also uh, sympathize with and in some cases support, uh, are there to, to, to try to nudge, persuade, shame states into acting, because only states can pass laws and enforce laws and, you know, uh, create economic policies. The European Union is a, is a partial exception to that. Uh, and um, so, yes, I mean, international cooperation, but between states. and But a recognition, I think, and this is the realist coming out, um, that uh, in the end, governments, state elites, but to a considerable extent, populations and electorates as well, uh, will act in what they take to be the interests of their states uh, or their societies, or at least um, the interests of the state as defined by the elite. Uh, and um, therefore, the, 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 the realist take on climate change is that you have to persuade um, them that the future well-being and survival of their states depends on action against climate change. 
So one of the pro- problems I find with Mersheimer and with realism in general is that it takes the nation state as the final form in human history, where if anything, history mitigates against that assumption. That if anything, and I, I don't want to be utopian, but I would just say, if you look empirically at the last 1,000 years, you get ever higher levels of political organization. So I don't quite understand the ontological commitment to the nation state in terms of ontology. So I get the fact that in 2021, I totally agree. Nation states are more important than uh, global governments and international law, which are essentially used as a fig leaf for American domination or great power domination, wherever you're looking. I totally agree. But I I could think that one would be able to accept that empirical reality while also accepting the historical reality of ever higher levels of state organization. And that's what I don't understand in terms of the realist case and why I do think it's ontologically still rooted in the 1930s to a problematic degree. And it's not, and for this reason, it is not the, the ideological, the theoretical approach that is most attuned to what's probably going to happen in the next 30 or 40 years. Well, nation state, the, 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 conflation of these two terms, which of course is, is indeed relatively new in human history. Uh, but of course, one has had some form or another of a state, mostly of course some form of dynastic state or, or empire, uh, going on for a very, very long time. Um, the Roman Empire was a state. Uh, Athens, classical Athens, was a state. Not a modern, not a nation state in yeah. the modern sense. You've had forms of Chinese state going around for a very, 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 very long time. Uh, and um, uh, I make absolutely no predictions for the long term. I mean, I'm a historian by training. What the world. Oh, nice. I didn't know that. Yeah. Fellow yeah. historian. Uh, yeah. Indeed. Uh, look, what the world will look like 200, 300 years from now, I don't know. Uh, the effects of climate change may indeed be uh, simply to crumple up all existing nation states. Uh, but um, uh, where we stand now, uh, the, uh, I, just, I don't think there's any denying that we live in a world of powerful states and that the elites of those states are absolutely determined to maintain those states, of course, also to maintain them under their rule. Uh, and that is true in, uh, in different ways in China, in India, in Russia. In Europe, the states are willing to pool their powers to a, you know, a limited degree. It's absolutely true in Washington. You know, uh, one thing that the Democratic and Republican establishments are united on, it's American state power, right? And all over the world, you have um, countries trying to develop stronger states. Uh, and of course, one <coughs> key reason for that is, um, <coughs> you know, I worked as a journalist in a number of countries where states had collapsed, including Afghanistan, by the way. Uh, <laughs> that is not a pretty sight, believe me, and it's not somewhere you would want to live. Um, you know, states uh, provide essential ser- services to the population. W- one of the reasons for the the, the the deep conservatism of voters in Russia and China and one or two places as well uh, are deeply ingrained historical memories of the consequences of state collapse for the population. Uh, and so um, I, I, as far as I can see, uh, not on ideological grounds, but simply on empirical grounds, uh, the state 
is going to be the essential building block of international affairs uh, as long as, shall we say, the present age of the world lasts. But the present, quite right, I mean, the present age of the world won't last forever. Uh, but um, I fear that the overthrow of existing states, major states, big states, will not come as a result of conscious and deliberate reform, international reform aiming at international governance, it will come, if it does, as a result of state collapse, um, perhaps very likely impelled by climate change. And I do not think that that will in fact be an advance if it happens for, for humanity. I'd like to bring us back to liberal internationalism, to the 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 article by Dudney and Eikenberry and, and your response to it. Um, the critique that they make of what they call the Quincy Coalition, I think. Uh, yeah, that's right. The Quincy Coalition. Um, you know, you've, I mean, you've already said it's, it's sort of facile. It's very simplistic. It telescopes a lot of different um, kind of approaches to foreign policy under basically the heading of isolationism, which is a long tradition. Danny, you've talked about it. Uh, Stephen Wertheim, former guest on the, this program, has written a book, you know, in part about this uh, sort of, you know, the, the tendency to lump everybody who is skeptical of uh, military intervention and, and sort of, you know, calls for restraint uh, to, to lump them under this category of isolationist. Uh, the Trump presidency has given these folks a new, uh, you know, new boogeyman to sort of uh, attached to the the restraint or to, to restrainers um, in the person of Donald Trump, basically because his rhetoric sounded somewhat isolationist. Um, what I took away, what I've thought for a while now, but but really was one of the takeaways uh, for me from your response, uh, is that if you actually look at the restraint school as represented by Quincy and and sort of uh, that. As facet of it, which, uh, you know, is full of people who talk about the need for international cooperation, the need for strong institutions, the need for an international law that is not routinely flouted by the United States, compared with liberal interventionism or liberal internationalism, which views, uh, you know, the United States as um, sort of the, the, if not, or the American system, let's say, is not, uh, if not the, you know, if we're not at the end of history, it's sort of like we know how it's going to end with uh, American-style democracy. And this is sort of the the attitude they take. They routinely talk about the rules-based order while countenancing, supporting, you know, the United States, writing those rules and then flouting them at every opportunity. Um, there seems to be a lot more to me uh, in common between Donald Trump's America first, which is really American dominance, uh, and, and what people like Dudney and Eikenberry are calling for than, than there is between um, the Quincy Institute. So I wonder if you could, you know, talk a little bit about this, uh, the record maybe of liberal internationalism and how it compares with uh, what we just saw in the, the previous uh, administration. Mm. Well, the, the argument I make in the essay, but also I think it's 
pretty bloody obvious, uh, is that this form of liberal internationalism, um, indeed, you know, liberal internationalism in practice in the world today does depend overwhelmingly on American power and American global hegemony. Uh, and of course, American global hegemony uh, depends in turn uh, very often on profoundly illiberal, undemocratic policies uh, and alliances. Uh, the, the liberal internationalists then sort of tr try to try to get out of this by saying, oh, you know, of course, America should promote democracy in the Middle East and, um, you, you know, uh, shouldn't support these, uh, the, these wicked dictatorial regimes like Saudi Arabia and Egypt. But that is either very naive or very hypocritical because, of course, uh, American hegemony in the Middle East depends on alliances with these states. And indeed, whenever there is a threat to these states, as during the Arab Spring, uh, well, if you've read Obama's memoirs, it was Hillary Clinton, supposedly the great liberal internationalist, uh, who said, no, no, we must go on supporting Mubarak. Mubarak is our guy. And if, um, uh, and if Mubarak falls, there could be chaos, there could be, um, uh, you know, Islamist takeover. So, you know, it, it, in the end, as I say in the piece, uh, America, whether calling itself liberal or not, is precisely as likely to get rid of uh, General Sisi and Prince Mohammed bin Salman, as President Putin is to get rid of um, President Lukashenko, you know, or Bashar al-Assad. This is what hegemony is, you know, it, 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 it is rooted in dominance and dominance through power, including client states. So yes, um, and, and of course, uh, Trump, um, well, he initiated the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and he maybe left to himself would have um, wanted a different policy towards uh, Russia. Uh, but of course, the, the whole notion of Trump as an isolationist is, is absolute nonsense. He, given the way he ratcheted up the Cold War with China, um, given the way he tore up uh, the um, nuclear treaty with Iran, and you know re reinstituted a, a policy of um, uh, sanctions, uh, extreme sanctions in alliance with Israel. Um, tr Trump, uh, tr Trump was just a, a, a much cruder version of American unilateralism. He wasn't an isolationist. So one thing is that, like, obviously, Eikenberry and Dudney are like very smart and perceptive people, um, and not to psychologize them. But why do you think there's this like significant blinkeredness? toward this, I mean, the critique was so bad, it was so unsophisticated, it was so obviously wrong that there has to be something going on there. Um, and it must, I mean, my initial inclination is that relates to like, it's the water, the American hegemony is the air they breathe, it's the water that they swim in and they can't even recognize it as such. So what do you think is accounts for this incredible blinkeredness of liberal internationalism in 2021? I have a, a close relative who remains um, an, an old-style official communist. Uh, nothing that has happened, uh, you know, over the past two generations has shaken this basic conviction, because he spent the first fifty years of his life uh, as a communist. So it's a leap of faith. It's a religious conviction, essentially. In in essence, um, you know, the yes, I mean, going back to Kant, and unlike uh, communism, I mean, very. Uh, as, as you said, I think very teleological. It, it is the belief in a perfect human future of democracy and, I mean, regulated capitalism, but basically 
it, it's it's Fuki, it's the end of history. You know, everybody laughed at Fukuyama, but they didn't. Uh, well, not everybody, not nearly enough people, but some people did. But uh, <laughs> soft Fukuyamaism, you, you know. Well, of course, it came out of very deep, old, old cultural, political, cultural roots in the United States and in Europe. But it, it became the the kind of the standard operating procedure ideologically. Uh, of the West after the Cold War. Um, and very, very difficult to give up if you've committed your whole life to, to, to this cause. Um, and uh, yes, I mean, uh, not, not in the case of, of, of Eichenbrunn and Dudeney in terms of personal ambition for, for office, uh, but certainly in, you know, in what Ben Rhodes called the, the, the blob. Um, this, this is uh, the, the, the doctrine of the American blob. Uh, and if you dissent from that, you leave the establishment. You are kicked out of, of the establishment. Well, that creates a formidable combination uh, of ideological, as you say, semi-religious conviction and personal ambition and interest. And of course, since nobody wants to look in the mirror and say, I, I, I will say anything, uh, in in order to have a chance of becoming the chief deputy assistant to the deputy assistant chief dog washer in the next administration, but three, um, they will look in the mirror and say, I'm supporting the, the spread of liberal democracy in the uh, world. I'm a good person. Yeah, exactly. I'm a good person. <laughs> um, you know, if... Uh, if uh, my ancestors on both, you know, on the two sides served the... Um, uh, the Russian and the British empires. And I'm sure if I'd been around then and had spent my life in imperial service, I too would have, you know, <laughs> been with the, the program. Um, it, 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 it sinks into people. So I have a quick question because you, you were talking about personal ambition and I just want to get your take on the American university as someone who spent so much time in that, in that system. What do you think, do you think it matters like, so Eikenberry's at Princeton. Uh, and where's Dudney? I forget. He's at somewhere at Good Hopkins. Yeah, uh, I think might he's, be Hopkins, yeah. Yeah, I think he's at Hopkins. So these are like as incredibly, yeah, he is. He, these are as, as successful as, as academics could possibly get. Um, but Mersheimer's at Chicago and Walt's at Harvard. So I was wondering, do you think there's any advantage to a particular IR theoretical approach within the American Academy, or it just doesn't really matter and these are academics fighting amongst each other and who really cares uh, when, it come, when the rubber hits the road? Well, um, so I can't remember who said that, uh, you know, politicians believing that they are uh, expressing simple common sense are in fact reflecting some what some theoretician drew yeah, up. Keynes, right? The, the everyone's a prisoner that, of a long dead economist. Yeah, that's, that's Keynes, right. Yeah. That's right. And my yeah. God, you see that with neoliberalism, right? And the whole, you know, this this, in my view, crazed uh, ideological position that emerged originally from academia. And by God, because it, um, you, you know, it it had a. It suited a particular class configuration. It d developed legs which, alas, reshaped the world. So I think uh, in certain circumstances, academia can matter. Uh, but of course, I mean, in America, the point is that um, uh, if you want to be a, a Henry Kissinger, you know, if you want to move from acad academia into senior office, or Michael McFall, then, well, <laughs> Kissinger, of course, in certain respects, was uh, 
uh, was the was the exception as a you know as an open academic realist. On the whole, you have to um, talk the talk of liberal internationalism, you know, and uh, America's role in leading the world towards democracy uh, and freedom, uh, even if when in office you may behave you know as an iron hard realist you have to talk the talk so um when it comes to careers uh i think it's pretty striking that none of the leading academic realists uh including of course kennan himself uh have since kissinger played a, a significant part in american government whereas you know there's been a long list uh, of um, Samantha Powers, uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter, Michael McFall, you know, or um, uh, Anthony Lake of um, people with a liberal internationalist background moving into government. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, sort of liberal internationalism on its own terms. Uh, if we take Dudney and Eikenberry, you know, if, at, at face value, that what they want is um, for the United States to lead, you know, the global movement spreading freedom and American-style democracy around the world. And they tr truly believe that this is um, a good thing, not, not just a good thing, but almost inevitable uh, in some way. Um, and I, I don't think you can necessarily take every liberal internationalist at face value, but let's, I mean, in this case, I, I think we probably can. Even if we can't, though, this is sort of the, the rhetoric that gets used. Um, uh, you you mention in the piece, uh, in, in your piece, the the sort of self-defeating uh, nature of liberal internationalism as it's played out in justifications for the war in Iraq, justifications for the intervention in Libya, uh, justifications for nation building in Afghanistan. Um, the idea, I mean, the fact that we're sitting here in 2021 now and uh, there are large numbers of people around the world uh, who view the United States as a greater threat to the spread of freedom and democracy than anybody else, than China, Russia, you know, what have you. Uh, can you talk a little more about that and sort of what the, the record of liberal internationalism is, even if we, we take it on its own terms, uh, how successful or unsuccessful it has been? Well, the liberal internationalists, of course, keep coming back to, to the example of Western Europe. And uh, although this looks pretty tarnished by now, Central, you know, Western Europe after the Second World War, Central Europe after the, the fall of communism. And certainly in the first case, and to a limited extent in, in the second, um, you know, this, this does make sense. Uh, you know, America, victory of American arms in Western Europe did reintroduce liberal democracy to, to, to Western Europe. Um, in East Asia, of course, much more complex. Uh, but, I mean, it can be argued that uh, American hegemony um, did uh, contribute to, 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 to helping lead um, Taiwan, South Korea uh, to democracy. Uh, Japan, of course, it can be argued that America, in fact, uh, installed a kind of oligarchy under the um, face of, of democracy, but still. But, um, of course, these are geographically limited uh, parts of the world. And as I often say, you know, my students in, in Qatar, 
Even the ones who wanted an American alliance, like the Qataris, who depend on the American alliance totally. But the um, great majority of my students from the Middle East uh, or, or from South Asia, uh, not one of them, and I mean not one of them in seven years, believe that America is genuinely committed to spreading democracy and liberty and so on. And if you ask them why not, they'd simply say, well, why on earth should we, given the record of America? In this region, I mean, what is the evidence for America being committed to this <clears throat> in Egypt, in in Iran, in Pakistan, you know, whatever? So um, the, the 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 thing is that um, I'm not blaming America for the the um, uh, the existence of dictatorships in in this part of the world, um, but uh, the we didn't help. <laughs> you didn't help. Exactly. We're you not didn't help. not part of the solution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I blame us. Uh, I, I I blame America uh, a lot, actually, given the sheer – I mean, this is, again, kind of a philosophical commitment. Given the sheer power, I think America bears moral responsibility and ethical responsibility for a lot of what has gone on in the world since 1945 in different regions at different moments. But I really do think there's an ethical responsibility in this country that no one owns up to because of the all-volunteer force. You don't actually have to think about empire ever. It's just something that other – the Janissary Corps does. Um, and so I think that's a, a – a, I, I blame personally. <laughs> well, I think it, it it differs in different parts of the world. You know, I yeah. mean, undoubtedly, America can be blamed very, very heavily for the condition of Central America, for example. Yeah. And incidentally, I mean, one thing that uh, uh, many realists would say, coming back to the question of you know American state interest, that one of the weirdest things about American global empire or hegemony or whatever you want to call it is the extraordinary degree to which it's left America to led America to neglect you know its own backyard um you know America pours money into places thousands and thousands of miles away uh, but has you know has exercised its domination of of central america through a mixture of free market economics, which turned out to be bad for everybody, um, and uh, the support of local oligarchies through military force and, of course, the war on drugs, um, while, giving, while giving the region pitiful amounts of, um, of developmental aid. No other country behaves in this way. I mean, all other major states concentrate on their own neighbours first. And I think that's why a big problem I have with IR realism as it's been instantiated by its major thinkers is it does not talk about capitalism really at all. Uh, and I think that's such a crucial – I mean, I think – and we on the left talk only about capitalism – and we don't talk enough about security. And on the other side, you talk only about security and not enough about capitalism. And I think they're still waiting for the major theoretical work that brings those two sides together. How American nation-state-based security became the defender of an internationalized capitalism. Because I think mm -hmm. a lot of like the, the contradictions are explained by like capital flow, you know, and the interest of not only American-based business, which the American state turned on in the 1970s, but in terms of multinational capitalism. And I think that is the world situation since Nixon basically took us off gold in the early 1970s. And I think that's a lacuna on both sides of the equation that we really need to bring together in terms of a master theoretical uh, synthesis. That, that work is waiting to be done. Mm. Yes. So, I mean, of course, it should, it, it, it should be noted that uh, America's capitalist domination or the West capitalist domination of the world uh, you know, is now in question. Uh, and crumbling to some extent, and you have a, a different version of capitalism coming out of China, 
uh, and to some extent the Far East more generally. Uh, it's still capitalist, but of course it is state-led uh, capitalist. Uh, and uh, the, other, the other thing, of course, is, is that um, America itself, and certainly Europe, uh, has had uh, several different kinds of capitalism uh, in the course of its history. Um, the, the, the wild turbocharged neoliberalism uh, of the past two generations, I suppose now, uh, is not the, the, the universal pattern of, uh, of American or Western history. It's capitalism w without an enemy, basically. This yeah, is what capitalism does on its own, exactly. <laughs> without, a, without an exogenous limiting force, which is actually really interesting because one could argue this is what it really is at its heart, is what we've seen since 1989. Perhaps you yes. I mean, I think you could say that. And if, and my argument on climate change is is uh, precisely that we need to see climate change as uh, an existential threat to capitalism, which capitalism uh, left to itself cannot solve because capitalism left to itself has never reformed itself seriously. Um, but it has been reformed, but of course by um, democratic state action. Uh, in various countries, which worked actually pretty well for a number of decades. So I think it can be done. But I take your point. Well, well, just very, very quickly, it worked well when Europe annihilated itself and the United States controlled 50% of world production. I think an era unlikely to be repeated again in the future. You're referring to the 45 to mid-70s, right? When it worked well. I'm, well. I'm referring to, I mean, the, the legacy of the New Deal in America um, and the creation of the of welfare states in Europe. Um, which were, uh, I mean, a product of, re of, of course, a fear of communism, but also reaction against the free market capitalism of the 1920s, which had produced the catastrophes of Nazism um, and the Second World War. So, um, I mean, you know, I, I too consider myself a a, a social democrat or possibly a left wing <laughs> uh a, you know um a, an old left wing catholic uh <laughs> oh um, nice like uh, paul tillich hmm, well or, or the popolari in italy you know who opposed Mussolini yeah, yeah. and the, the communists um but uh, i mean I, I i take your your point um uh about um capitalism but of course uh that is also True of the uh, of the liberal internationalists, um, they. I mean, the thing about the realists, I think it, it's to 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 say they. Um, you're right. It, it's not that, except by default, I suppose they support capitalism. Um, it's that they basically ignore. Uh, yeah, it's system. such an enormous gap. It really limits the effectiveness of the theory, in my opinion. It's such mm. a big gap. Mm. <laughs> but I don't. I don't. I, I wrote a whole book about about capitalism and the collapse of Russia in the uh, in, in the nineteen nineties, and this forms a, a central part of my book on climate change, obviously, and of my book on American nationalism, uh, which came out very prophetically, if I may say so, in two thousand four. So I, I'm innocent of that. <laughs> <laughs> My final question will be: What does the realist world look like, in your opinion? What do you mean, an ideal? Yeah, an idea—the ideal utopia of of realism. I mean, obviously, one world government, no war, Star Trek. But besides that, looking out from twenty twenty one, what would your ideal uh, U.S. foreign policy, in particular, look like? Uh, are we getting rid of all of the bases? Are we maintaining bases in East Asia? What are we doing? 
I'd maintain bases in, in Japan and South Korea as long as they want us. I would keep a distance from uh, Taiwan to the, you know, as America has. I would seek com compromise with China in, uh, on the South China Sea. Um, I would uh, be, uh, I would not uh, form any kind of quasi alliance with India. I think that's extremely dangerous. Um, and I would uh, do my utmost to work with China and India and other countries um, on climate change, uh, regulation of world trade, uh, and uh, other issues. Um, I, I would pull back from uh, any kind of intervention in, in the Middle East. In fact, I would rule out military intervention, except in the most extreme cases, uh, Rwanda, I suppose, being one of them, um, and only uh, by international agreement, international consensus. And as far as the United States is concerned, I would um, drastically cut the military budget, um, and I would uh, devote America uh, along lines that Eisenhower actually said, very strongly um, to domestic regeneration uh, and uh, to the attempt to improve and develop America's own region in, in, in Mexico and Central America. So I wouldn't call that a utopia, but that would be my ideal American you know, foreign policy strategy. Oh, and I, I tell the bloody Europeans um, that they can look after their own defense. <laughs> oh, and, thank um, you. This is a theme. This has been a theme of the yeah. podcast. We say that all extent. the time. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, and and that, um, you know, the, uh, seek a reasonable compromise with Russia uh, and uh, stop prancing and prating and speech making, you know, behind the shield of American military power, while also constantly whining at the American state. Look after yourself. You know? Speaking as a Brit, by the way. <laughs> Um, so my, my question, and I, I think we can end on this because it's sort of a philosophical question and you can, you know, take as long or as, as short to answer it as you want. And I, I'd like both of you actually to answer this. Um, in your piece, uh, you, you quote, uh, you have a quote from Russell Nye, the, the, uh, the scholar who passed away many years ago, uh, where he says uh, that the idea of special destiny is as old as nationalism itself. However, no nation in modern history has been quite so consistently dominated as the United States by the belief that it has a particular mission in the world. Uh, my question is, to what do you, do you, I'm assuming you, you agree with that uh, statement, to what do you attribute it? Is it a function of simply having enough power to, to feed uh, the idea of special destiny? Uh, is it a function of th the particular environment of World War II and the Cold War during, you know, when a lot of this uh, stuff sort of incubated, these ideas incubated? Um, is it religion? What, what is it about the United States that sort of makes, makes this uh, you know, gives us this uh, such a conviction. Well, the, the this belief in special destiny go, goes back to before the, the the very first white settlement of North America. You know, it's rooted in 16th century Protestantism. It's obviously there from the very first settlers in 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 New England. Uh, but of course, um, for most of American history, America lacking power and and also interest outside North America, uh, this was exemplary, you know, America setting the example for the rest of the world. Um, but once uh, America developed the power uh, to intervene um, 
uh, elsewhere. Well, it 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 turned into an interventionist ones, but the uh, an interventionist version. But the um the the cultural political roots of this, uh, of course, by origin largely religious, but then taking on aspects of secular religion, um, go very very deep indeed. I wrote a whole book about this called An Anatomy of American Nationalism that came out in 2004. And uh, it's so deeply rooted, it is so central to American civic nationalism. And by the way, of course, it it uh, it is tied up in very complex uh, and deep ways with the positive features of American civic nationalism, you know, in, in, t- in terms of American openness, uh, of course, um, and for many, many years, not racial openness, but at least in sections of America now, you know, the genuine openness and tolerance of aspects of American political culture also tied up with this. So it's not going to go away. I basically uh, agree with uh, most of that. I think the, the the positive aspects, I think we would need to investigate more, but that's really for another time. Um, so uh, I guess let me take the opportunity, Anatole, to thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast. Uh, Derek and I really appreciate it. And we loved your uh, criticism of uh, Eikenberry and Dudney. And, you know, we're fans of the Quincy Coalition. I'm I'm in it. Uh, and Derek's uh, a fellow traveler. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much. And, and we hope to have you back at some point in the future. We really appreciate thanks, it. Thanks. Thanks, Adam, so very much. Thank you.